So did you hear the one about the rabbi and the lawyer? This is great. Um, there was this lawyer, see, and um, he was feeling a little full of himself, as lawyers are prone to feeling. Uh, no offense, Alvin, Barry, Keith, and any other attorneys in the room. <laughs> full of beans, full of oats, full of all sorts of things um, was the lawyer in the prime of his career, smart and sharp tongue and as good a verbal uh, chess player as you could find. There was also this rabbi, uh, a young pup he was, a country boy, uh, but cool enough to have gathered a band of admittedly ragtag followers, mostly country boys and girls like himself, people whose speech betrayed their lack of sophistication with all that slurring and blurring of their vowels and consonants. Okay, so there was this lawyer and there was this rabbi, and the rabbi had earned a bit of a reputation for his ability to debate. Rumor had it that when he was only 12 years old, he'd managed to flummox the, um, well, some of the brightest lights in the temple. Since then, he'd made it a habit of causing the local wise guys, the Pharisees and Sadducees, to spin like tops in their frustration. No one could outdraw the rabbi, who was the fastest rhetorical gun in town. But the lawyer, full of beans and oats and himself, he had a very good self-esteem, all polished and burnished until, like Aladdin's lamp, it issued in an oversized version of himself, all powerful and wise and capable of taking it to the young rabbi and putting him smack back in his place. No kid from Galilee could outface him. So the lawyer went after the young rabbi, and, well, this is what happened. The, the lawyer opened with a trick question, uh, a strong opening gambit designed to get the young rabbi to overcommit. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, maybe he was hoping the rabbi would stumble, um, exposing his ignorance of the law, or maybe he hoped the rabbi would offer some minority opinion, uh, some backwards piety that he could easily ridicule. But I doubt that he was expecting what he got, which was a very adroit turning of the table. Hmm, what must you do to inherit eternal life? You tell me. What's the law say? What's written there? Well, the lawyer doesn't flinch, though I wonder if he didn't feel just a little bit surprised at how easily he'd been spun around, having set out to be the prosecutor, but now suddenly on the defensive. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And the young rabbi said that he got an A. Nice answer. Perfect delivery. Now go and live like that, and you will live in eternity. Which, by my calculation, leaves us with a score of rabbi one, lawyer, well, nil. Not the preferred outcome, as they say. So the lawyer decides to double down to try again, to take another crack at the rabbi, and, well, we can guess where this is going, but uh, as the queen said, another one bites the dust. Um, <laughs> but seeking to regain the high ground, the lawyer asks, well, who is my neighbor? And the rabbi answers. Did you hear the one about the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan? I mean, this is great. This is really great. You're going to love this. Okay. Okay, here goes. So, once there was this guy who was walking along the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, just walking along, minding his own business, and these robbers jumped him and beat him and stole all his stuff and stripped him of his clothes and left him there by the road, and he was almost dead. A priest walked by. He saw the almost dead guy and walked away from him to the other side of the road. A Levite walked by. 
he saw the almost dead guy and walked away from him to the other side of the road. A Samaritan came by. He saw the almost dead guy. He felt pity. He walked toward him. He treated and then bandaged his wounds. He put him on his animal. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. He gave the innkeeper some money. He asked the innkeeper to take care of him. He promised to make up the difference financially when he came back through town. So which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The one who showed him mercy, the lawyer muttered. Go and live like that, and you will live forever. I suspect the lawyer knew when he was beaten, whooped, in fact, by a country rabbi. His once bountiful self-esteem lay in tatters by the side of the road, half dead, robbed of all its former brilliance. We can only hope he got the help he needed to get back on his feet. And even though it's contrary to the, well, to the spirit of the story, we're going to leave him there lying by the side of the road in order to get on with the business at hand, which is to take another look at the parable of the Good Samaritan um, and to do so with our stewardship theme in mind. It's really pretty amazing, I think, uh, the way these old familiar stories keep surprising us each time we read them. Stories like this, they don't lose their sting. They don't lose their ability to make us sit up and take notice, stirring us out of the lethargy that's born of getting too cozy with them. And what first caught my eye this time around was that there is really only one flesh and blood character in the story, only one character that seems to actually breathe, and that's the Samaritan. The other characters perform their function, but are otherwise lifeless, inert, two-dimensional figures. The unidentified man, the robbers, the Levite, the priest, the innkeeper. They provide the backdrop against which the one living character, the one fully incarnated character, acts which suggests to me that Jesus wants our attention to be focused on the Samaritan. The Samaritan is the star of this little drama, the protagonist, the one to whom we ought to look for the meaning of the tale. And so it is that Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who'd fallen into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer wanted to know who is his neighbor, which, uh, who out there somewhere is his neighbor, and and so the one that the lawyer ought to love as he loves himself, which implies that among the great mass of humanity, some are our neighbors and others are not. Some are worthy, others are not. And I think that's the way we tend to frame the question too, isn't it? I mean, who out there is our neighbor? Who out there must we love as we love ourselves? We assume that the neighbor is the other, the needy, the wounded, the one without hope. But that's not the way Jesus calls the lawyer to think about the parable. Instead, Jesus calls the lawyer to consider what it means for him to be the neighbor. Jesus shifts attention away from identifying the one in need and calls the lawyer to look instead at his own conduct, his own neighborliness. He calls the lawyer to be the Samaritan. Now, this is, of course, a very scandalous suggestion. It would be like calling us to be the good Taliban, or the good homosexual, or the good atheist, the hero of the story, the one who most exemplifies the love of God, turns out to be the one that we religious folks have determined to be anathema, someone that we describe as being outside 
the camp, outside the pale, outside the covenant, outside the grace of God, someone who we believe has no business behaving mercifully, compassionately, decently, someone who has, we say, no claim on the love of God, no claim to the salvation found in Christ. And yet, it's this one who's acting like God's own child, this one who's the hero of the story, this one we are called to emulate. Now, the righteous ones, the people like us, they saw the wounded one and walked away. Now, they likely had very good reasons for doing that, sound, well-thought-out reasons for walking away, good, solid, biblical reasons for walking away. Unless we get too confident that we're not like that priest and that Levite, let's remember that we engage regularly in just that kind of calculation. We measure the one in need of a neighbor. We determine the merit of the need. We judge the worthiness of their claim against us. We weigh that claim over against whatever theological or political or social formulas are currently in vogue and, and so determine the extent of our neighborliness. And we do this not only with the person asking us for a dollar, but with the outcast seeking entry into our community or the stranger walking by our door. We develop entire ethical systems in the abstract, talking about this class of people or that kind of people or people who engage in this unacceptable behavior and then determine the extent of our neighborliness. And we do this kind of thing all the time. We act like the priest and the Levite. We are the priest and the Levite. And so before we condemn them out of hand, let's be honest with ourselves and admit that we too walk away all too often and for all the right reasons. But the Samaritan, he sees the man lying half dead and he walks toward, he bandages, he soothes, he carries, he takes care, he pays, he speaks, all of these actions in response to the needs of the half-dead man lying by the road. These are the movements of mercy, the movements of neighborliness, moving toward, entering in, offering aid, providing respite, moving toward, moving toward, moving toward, the movements of mercy. Gustavo Gutierrez in commenting on this story, says that by approaching the wounded man, the Samaritan made him his neighbor. The neighbor is not the one whom I find in my path, but rather the one in whose path I place myself, the one whom I approach and actively seek. The man lying half dead by the side of the road had no claim upon the Samaritan. Rather, the Samaritan saw the man lying there and claimed him as his neighbor. And then the Samaritan behaved as a neighbor to the man. Which puts me in mind of Jesus, uh, to tell you the truth. The one incarnate character in the story, the one flesh and blood, living, breathing character in the story, reminds me of God incarnate, living and breathing and dwelling among us, Jesus the Christ. The one who's neighbor to the world. Not that we had any claim upon him. No, he came toward us. He claimed us, he healed us, he carried us, he paid our way. And at the risk of going all allegorical, it seems to me that the Samaritan looks an awful lot like God. The God who became a human being in order to pick us up when we were hafted by the side of the road. And so when the lawyer, when Jesus calls the lawyer, when Jesus calls us to behave like a neighbor, to behave like the Samaritan, I believe he is calling us to behave like himself, to behave like Jesus. In short, 
to be good stewards of mercy. And when we talk about stewardship, we tend to think about being good caretakers of things that belong to us, like money or time or talent. And we could consider this parable on those terms and, and note the generosity of the Samaritan. He gave of his time, his talent, his energy, his money, and all for the sake of the one in need. And so we see the example for our own generosity, our own sharing of resources. And so we too give of those things to those around us who are in need. And we rightly confess that these things are not our own, as Peter told us this morning. They've been given to us by God, but no matter how much we may mean what we say about them, I, I think we still sometimes do act as though they belong to us. And so we feel called to dole them out wisely, sparingly, uh, not wanting to cast our pearls before swine. We're called to account for them, to preserve them, to share them well, and, and so we do. We do. Sometimes more generously than others, uh, perhaps depending on the item that's being shared or perhaps depending on the object of our sharing. But we're not a tight-fisted people. We're generous. We're well-intentioned. And we make what we have go a long way. Like the Samaritan, we are good stewards of our temporal and material resources. But good stewards of mercy, I mean, what does that even mean? Good stewards of something that's not material, it's more way of being, it's a, a posture toward the world, a posture toward those we meet, a posture that allows us to receive everyone, love everyone, welcome everyone. How are we to be stewards of mercy? Well, I think we have to begin by remembering that we have had much mercy given to us. Once we were no people, right? But now, through God's mercy, we're a people. Once we were lost, but now, through God's mercy, we are found. Once we were without hope, but now, through God's mercy, we have hope. Once we were dying, but now, through God's mercy, we have eternal life. Everything that we are in Christ is because of God's mercy. All that we are in Christ Jesus is a consequence of God choosing to give us something without regard to our being worthy of receiving it. Mercy, mercy me, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, we'd still be lying there by the side of the road, bleeding and dying, if not for the mercy of the God who walked toward us and named us beloved children, carried us to the place of healing. I mean, is there any bigger, any more amazing, any more precious and dumbfounding gift than the mercy poured out upon us by God through Jesus Christ? And so, as those who have received mercy, how shall we live? What will we do with this most amazing, extravagant gift? With open hands and open hearts, we do the only thing we can with such a gift. We give it away, which means that We'll resist the impulse to make sure that someone deserves our being merciful toward them, remembering that we didn't deserve the mercy given to us in Christ. We'll resist the impulse to walk the other way, whether out of a spirit of judgment or a need for solitude or a belief in tough love or because the confession of faith tells us to. We'll commit ourselves to remembering individually and corporately that the first merciful movement was God coming to us. We'll seek to be more graceful, less stiff and formal as we bend toward each other. We'll go out of our way, in the words of Gustavo Gutierrez, 
to place ourselves onto the path of the other and claim them as neighbor, as loved, as friend, as companion in mercy. We'll see our movement toward the other for what it is and ought to be. The first move in what will be the creation of a new community, a new people, drawn together by God's own mercy freely shared, mercy given and received. So often, as Pastor Sue reminded us last week, so often our stewardship is practiced in a spirit of frugality, a spirit of scarcity. There's only so much to go around, and we know that's true, and so we have to use it wisely and preserve it so we'll have enough to see us through. And when we're talking about stewardship of material resources, we, I think, are right. I mean, short of a massive redistribution of wealth, um, we're always going to be caught in this zero-sum game, humbly reminded every time we do give that if everything were right with the world, well, everybody would have enough. But this mercy of which we're stewards, it has no ending. It will not. It cannot run dry because its source is God, and whatever God gives is given in abundance. Now, that mercy takes lots of forms, of course. For the Samaritan, it included moving toward, rescuing, offering aid, healing, and some financial offering. For us, it may mean all of those things and more. I mean, the form our mercy takes when shared is contextual, right? And and must be discerned with an ear toward hearing what is really needed, what would be genuinely beneficial to the other, to their relationship with us, and what can be given that affirms and respects the integrity of both the giver and the recipient. But what does not require discernment is the call we've been given to be merciful as we've received mercy which means being merciful with abandon, extravagantly, falling all over ourselves and moving toward all those around us, claiming them as neighbors, being neighborly to them, loving them as we love ourselves, receiving their love in return. And because there's no bottom to this mercy, we can afford to be cavalier, reckless even, not fretting over things like worthiness or correctness or any of those other qualifiers that we tend to put on our mercy. Now we can finally just let our hair down, Start moving in mercy, trusting that there's plenty more where that came from. And who knows, who knows, as we cut loose and open our hands and learn to walk toward each other's, learn to walk toward others rather than walking by them, we may well develop a little lilt in our steps, a little shimmy in our hips, a little lightness in our toes being lifted up and carried along by the very mercy that we've been given and are now spreading around us, catching the spirit of the thing, all of us dancing to the rhythm of God's heartbeat. And so we find joy, right? We learn that when we set aside our anxiety, our fear of scarcity, our judgment, we really do like being people of mercy. We really do like being set free from all the barriers, all the walls, all the theological and social reasons we have for being stingy. We enjoy being set free from those things. And so discovering what it feels like to actually behave like the Samaritan, to actually behave like Jesus and the God who sent them. We learn slowly but surely how to dance the dance of mercy, the dance of neighborliness, the dance that moves to the music of heaven, a tune whistled by the angels, a movement of mercy that begins in God and works its way out to the whole world through those of us who've been given more mercy than we know what to do with. Every once in a while on a Monday night, I'll offer a little unsolicited sermonette to those who are serving our community meal. And 
Well, they tend to be a merciful bunch, and so they listen to me, or at least pretend to, which is probably all I can ask for. Um, anyhow, the sermonette goes like this. When you come and serve food to these, our guests, when you welcome them, when you chat with them and listen to them and allow yourself to be shaped by your encounter with them, when you do these things for and with our guests, many of them poor and lonely and wounded and addicted and in other ways cast aside, when you do these things, you're doing exactly what Jesus wants you to do, which is pretty cool, right? I mean, everybody wants to know, what would Jesus do? Well... Here you are, for at least a few hours on a Monday, doing it. How cool is that? In the end, I'd say the same thing about our stewardship of mercy. The Samaritan is our example, an example based, I believe, on the very one telling the story. Its author, its center, Jesus the Christ. When we move toward others, when we place ourselves onto her path, when we when we claim that, that she's no longer other but neighbor and friend, we're doing exactly what Jesus would do. When we, in turn, receive the neighborliness of the other, when we receive her generosity, when we welcome her and listen to her and allow ourselves to be shaped in part by our relationship to her, we're stewards of mercy. We're imitators of Christ. When we freely share God's mercy, when we ourselves move in mercy, we're behaving exactly like Jesus wants us to do. And if that doesn't make us joyful, well, I don't know what will. Amen.